This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. It's a startling statistic. As of this past Monday, Toronto had seen a total of 40 pedestrian deaths. Number 39 and 40 were two young men, both 19, struck and killed by a vehicle traveling at a high rate of speed on progress at Markham in Scarborough. The teenagers were walking on the sidewalk when the driver lost control of the vehicle and hit them. He has been charged with a number of offenses, all having to do with drinking and driving. A third 19-year-old male was also hit and was taken to hospital in serious condition. This happened on a day when there were two other pedestrian collisions in Toronto, including at Queen and Dunn, where a 70-year-old man riding a scooter was hit by a streetcar. Pedestrian safety is an ongoing conversation when Libby Snymer's Zoomer Squad joins her to discuss issues affecting older Canadians. That's where the conversation began this past Monday with David Kravitz, VP of Zoomer Media, and Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. It does seem like the rate of death or injury is not slowing down since the implementation of Vision Zero. I'm not saying that it's not working. Um, but I think that we aren't doing enough to invest in this program and that more has to be done. And, you know, with what the mayor announced not too long ago, implementing, you know, radar cameras and school zones, that'll be good. But they need to be more aggressive in terms of reducing speed limits. Increasing enforcement has to be a key part of trying to reduce the number of pedestrian deaths in the city of Toronto. David? What I'm really worried about is that this is the third or fourth we got a maybe in a row, but certainly in the last half dozen, we're, we're, we've talked about this. And it doesn't seem to be um, anything that any of the remedies uh, can fix in the short run. And what I'm very worried about is that gradually, imperceptibly, it becomes the new normal. And we say, okay, we've thrown a million bucks at it, you know, through an enforcement unit, and it's a big city, and there's a million drivers running around, and... Um, somebody's eventually going to, you know, like the frog in the boiling water, this is just going to become the new normal. And it's going to be harder and harder to not accept it. And that that's a very dangerous place to go. But it seems like what we're trying isn't working. But the thing about enforcement is, like, at the moment, the status quo is people are getting away with criminal behavior. Because <clears throat> whether they're speeding or they're turning right where they ought not to be, there aren't enough police officers on the streets to catch it, and so they're getting away with it, and they do it again. And so I think at a minimum, we need to start with enforcement. We need to make sure that there are more people on the streets catching this kind of behavior so that it doesn't happen in the first place. Now, in the case of the incident that occurred over the weekend um, with the drunk driver, I mean, I, I saw quite a few, um, uh, what are they called, the roadside detection units. Okay, the ride the program. The ride program. I saw quite a few of them out, certainly where I live, um, and I know that they're fairly expensive to operate, um, but particularly around the holiday season, I mean, I think they need to be out in, in full force. David, I'm wondering, do you think that 
there is a marked difference in the way they treat death by gunfire and death by car. And and are they throwing more resources, even though the number of people that are killed is the same? Well, I think it's true. I think that, and that's kind of what I was saying, that if, if the pedestrian thing becomes sort of, well, you know, with the X million people in the city, this is kind of a threshold that we're trying our best. We'll throw the resources at it. Guns are, are, are inherently, uh, I think, a scarier topic to most people. I mean, the number of people that drive a car who have been in a fender bender, maybe not a fatality, but see cars all the time, whereas I've never seen anybody, uh, uh, I don't think I've ever seen anybody shoot a gun, let alone shot by a gun. So it, 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 it tends to get the, the fear factor up a lot more. Um, and so gradually the traffic becomes, you know, we'll put some cameras here. I'm not minimizing it. They're, they're, they, they've got to do more. They're going to try to do more. But I think you're quite right. I think it is treated differently. Um, and in pedestrian deaths might be this kind of insidious, creeping uh, condition that we gradually uh, sort of accept as part of uh, living in a big city. And that's what I'm very afraid of. I don't want to accept it, but I can... I can see it coming. I can see people just getting more numbed out by it. And, you know, I'll do my best. I'll try to be careful. And um, I don't like it. I share uh, Marissa's feelings of, you know, heartfelt sympathy with the families. It's terrible. Let's discuss who are the winners and the losers of the year. Let's start with Marissa. Oh, all right. Well, I have. let's start with the winner, maybe. Okay. My winner for this year is Deb Schulte. She's, of course, the new seniors minister. Congratulations to her. She's a cancer survivor, and she has an incredible resume. And uh, I can say that CARP is seriously looking forward to working with her. We've already had a number of discussions, and we are certainly aligned on a number of issues. So she would be my winner this year. <coughs> my loser is Andrew Shear. Now, some might call him a winner. Because he... Oh, I don't think anybody I know would call him a winner. (laughs) Well, he reduced the... So for the those big C conservatives out there, he was able to reduce... Well, maybe it might not have been through his own doing, but he reduced the liberal government to a minority. So some might view that as a win. However, he was forced to step down because of inappropriately using funds where he ought not to have been using for his children's private school education. And uh, for that reason, he is my loser of the year. Okay. Well, I, I, uh, I would argue he's my loser of the year too, by the way. <laughs> uh, yeah, you stole mine, Marissa, but, <laughs> but I would cite a bunch of other reasons. I, th- I think that he's basically gone because his party realized that he's not electable as prime minister period. Um, but uh, let's move along to David, your winners. Well, and uh, yeah, just to, to piggyback on Cher, it's too, uh, I didn't pick him only because uh, it, it's too obvious. He, he, he's not electable as a PM, but also he blew an electable election. It's not yeah. like he was coming on strong and we really liked the campaign he fought and he's sure to win next time. Um, he was handed a lot of opportunities that he didn't um, that he didn't uh, take advantage of. Um, that said, I would flip that around. My loser of the year is an apparent winner, which is uh, Justin Trudeau, because I think that although he won the election, uh, the damage to his um, persona, let's say, was uh, irreversible. Now, he may turn out to be the winner next year, because according to what I'm reading, 
he's trying to pivot to a more business-like, less less sort of talkative and showy uh, demeanor, and we'll see how that plays. But he really, uh, his brand was tarnished um, in a way that uh, I don't think is easy to come back from. So he's going to have to rebrand, and we'll see what you know, see how that uh, how that works. So he he would be my loser of the year. My winner may be a little surprising. Also, I think um, I'm going to go with uh, Doug Ford because I think that he did the reverse. He had a terrible position early on in his uh, administration, and he seems to have come on in a bit more of a reasoned, mature way. And he's even, you know, trying to work with Trudeau and trying to work, trying to be a bit of a statesman among the premiers. We'll see whether he can pull it off. Um, there's certainly a lot of critics, but I think that he has uh, repaired a lot of damage, and Trudeau, uh, although he won an election, sustained a lot of damage. So maybe I'm a little bit contrarian on both of those. We are almost out of time, so let's end with this question. Pleasant surprise of the year. Marissa. Okay, I might have said it earlier, but my pleasant surprise of the year was dental care for low-income seniors in Ontario. I was delighted by this announcement. I think it's an incredibly important program. We know that people uh, where they're strapped may choose to forego um, uh, dental cleaning, um, but it has a real impact on your overall health. People don't realize the inextricable link between those two. So I was pleased to see that program uh, brought in. David? I have a tie between two. Am I allowed to? Yes, you're Um, allowed to. Given all the naysaying of six months ago, present surprise, number one, the British election, number two, the uh, continued performance of the stock market. Before we go very quickly, looking ahead to next year, um, one big hope for next year from each of you. Oh, well, the biggest hope of all, of course, would be the elimination of hallway medicine, as was promised by our um, Ontario government and other provinces uh, across the other governments, um, provincial governments across the country. So we'll see. David? And piggybacking onto that in a wider sense, uh, my biggest hope is that next year's year that Canadians finally make health care the number one issue and put the fear of God into the politicians. That was Libby Zneimer in conversation with David Kravitz. VP of Zoomer Media, and Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It's been described as a permanent stain on his presidency. On December 18th, Donald J. Trump became the third president in America's history to be impeached after the House of Representatives voted in favor of two articles of impeachment. Trump was charged with abuse of power and obstruction of Congress for asking the president of Ukraine to investigate Trump's Democratic rivals. The vote broke down almost exclusively on partisan lines. The next step will be a trial in the Senate, where Donald Trump is sure to be exonerated by a Republican majority. On the day after the House impeached Donald Trump, Libby Snymer was joined by Dr. Elliot Tepper, senior fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Dr. Jason Opel, associate professor and department chair of history and classical studies at McGill University. And Dr. Ronald Shuren, associate professor of political science at the University of Connecticut. In the previous impeachments, as has been often said, party members on both sides deviated from their party leadership. A small number in the Clinton case 
in the Nixon case, uh, there was virtual unanimity at the end with the evidence compelling. In this case, it was a highly partisan, totally um, charged debate. Only two Democrats deviated and voted no, and a couple voted present. All Republicans, even those who have been critical of the president, voted against the resolution of impeachment. Dr. Opal, one of the things that I've heard when this is brought up about how partisan it is, you know, people say, well, you know, it has ever been thus, except for the case of Nixon, who did not get impeached because he resigned beforehand. The two previous impeachments also played out on partisan lines. Well, they did, but but as noted, it's it, this is exceptionally partisan. It's, it's more so than than ever in the past. Um, it's notable also that even those uh, Republicans, as mentioned, who have been critical in the past of Mr. Trump, didn't even say something to the effect of, "Well, what he did was perhaps improper, but doesn't rise to the level of impeachable offense." It was an entirely no, he did nothing wrong, uh, and or you just hate uh, him and all 53 million Americans who voted for him. So it's exceptionally so. Um, there's been a couple of political scientists who have tried to you know, kind of distinguish between ordinary partisanship and you know, pathological partisanship, the, the kind in which the opposing side isn't simply jockeying for power or interpreting differently the law, but is an existential threat to the country. And I think that that is you know, fairly uh, evident now in the United States. Um, there are a couple of exceptions in which there are bipartisan bills passed for things like defense spending, but otherwise there's not just partisan bitterness, partisan hatred. Um, that I think is really quite, um, it's not the only time in American history, but it is very unusual. On the other hand, before this happened, there were demonstrations of people calling for the impeachment. Uh, and on the one hand, you see polls where President Trump isn't doing that well in the polls. But then then you look at the pictures from these rallies and these acolytes. I mean, there it's more than just political support. And it's it's quite mind boggling, Dr. Tepper. Yes, we have a fascinating situation where the technical argument now is that, you know, Democrats said they wouldn't impeach unless it was uh, had overwhelming evidence and also bipartisan support. And look, there was no bipartisan support, but that's because the president laid down the law, saying all Republicans had better back me. And that's because of his command over the Republican base. So asking the elected members, House or Senate, to deviate uh, is asking them to go against their own constituents, which are very solidly behind Donald Trump. Donald Trump has a higher approval rating within the party than Ronald Reagan ever did. This is, um, this is a party which has been mobilized behind the president, and he will turn them out at the polls. Remember, ultimately, what we're talking about is who holds power in America, and that's still an open question. This impeachment will play into that, but how it plays into it at this minute is not clear. Will there be a backlash against one side or the other? Will people who voted uh, perhaps in a way they didn't uh, actually feel, but they thought they had to? Uh, The Republican-backed lawyer, constitutional lawyer, who testified in front of, you know, when we had all those uh, 
those big domed people, you know, my colleague type mm-hmm. people, uh, uh, he was on air saying, this is like having a loose torpedo in the water. You don't know which way it's going to go after this impeachment process. Just the kind of way, as an American living in Canada, and at the risk of sounding corny here, it, there really is a cautionary tale in that while I'm far from someone who gets dewy-eyed about bipartisanship uh, or whatever else, there is a point at which partisan hatred becomes so entrenched uh, that institutional designs and constitutional democracy simply cannot stand it. It cannot function. And I, I, I worry that this is happening to my own country, and I really hope that um, Canadians take notice of that. Dr. Jason Opel, Associate Professor and Department Chair of History and Classical Studies at McGill University. Dr. Elliot Tepper, Senior Fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. And Dr. Ronald Shuren, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Connecticut. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Even though Christmas Day has come and gone, it's still the holiday season, a season of giving, which means many of us are feeling more generous than at other times of the year. But where do we start when it comes to holiday tipping? Who should we tip and how much should we give? Two days before Christmas, lifestyle expert Carrie Macbeth and etiquette expert Lisa Orr joined Libby to discuss. So there isn't a have-to list. Uh, There are some should consider. So the people that I think about for regular tipping are the people who are in your life on a regular basis. So it depends on who you have. So if you have a dog, you might have a dog walker. If you have children, you might have a babysitter. If you have someone who looks after your landscaping or your house, there might be all these people in your life. So those type of people or hairstylists, personal care sort of professionals, those people also end up typically on the list. Uh, and and so those are a group that I consider in my kind of holiday tipping. And, and the question often comes up is exact dollar amounts. And it varies surprisingly region to region. Um, but what I find is that um, in that group, typically it's the cost of one visit. Uh, but it, it a, there's a huge range. And I'll say this and there'll be someone in, in sort of Nova Scotia who says that's not at all what it is. So it really depends on where you are. Uh, but that's a ballpark number. OK, so we're in Toronto, the biggest city in Canada. And you're saying the cost of one visit. Let's bring in Carrie. She's on the left coast. That's well, that's, I guess, the second biggest city. So uh, what's what's the deal in Vancouver, Carrie? Well, first of all, Libby, um, what I want to really um, express is is that this is about holiday spanking. The, the word tip comes out. But it's really important to understand that this is the season for spanking. And with individuals who provide services, usually it is a monetary amount um, to thank somebody. With professionals, you should never thank a professional with a gratuity. So I, I really want people to understand that this is about thanking. And it's also about understanding what your budget is. Um, yes, it can certainly vary from, from city to city, but it also varies on the individual's budget and what they can actually afford. Because one should not feel obligated during the holidays to express their thanks through a gratuity if their budget is actually not allowing that. So that's, that's a big thing. I do uh, agree um, that it is definitely, it does Maneuver from city to city, if, if for all those people who are living in Vancouver, our cost of living has certainly gone up. Um, absolutely. But whatever you tip is based on your personal budget. I like to bulk buy. So if there's 
if I know there's a lot of like people who need to leave little things for, so I'll do a tea or I'll do a candle and I buy a bunch of them. And then that way, if there's people who are, they're not necessarily people I would give money to, but I just want to say a little thank you. I include, so I do them all the same. Every, there's no one who's going to say, oh, she gave me something different from you. Um, and then that way I've got them all set. As I said, I mentioned I'm a little behind the eight ball. So that lets me catch up a little bit at this point in the year. Okay. Uh, we're basically out of time. What would you like to leave us with, Carrie? Um, I want to go back to um, this is the, the season of, of, of giving and, and thanking. Um, please, everybody, really consider your own personal budget. And if it's not within your budget this year, um, there's, there's nothing wrong with a beautiful um, homemade card or just taking the time to state that you appreciate them and that maybe this year is, is a bit tight, but look forward to next year. But please don't put yourself in, in, into any personal debt just because you feel that you need to to tip certain people during the holidays. Okay, and Lisa? I agreed with Carrie, and uh, I think the reality is is just taking time to recognize people. Every it, it really makes a big difference after a long year like this, and I think taking the time to recognize those people in our life who make it special uh, is really what it's all about. Libby Snymer in conversation with lifestyle expert Carrie McBeth and etiquette expert Lisa Orr. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Richard in Wheatley phoned to say who he thinks should be the next federal conservative leader. I was wondering why no one has brought up John Bayard's name. He has the right temperament to run the country. Plus, he knows the numbers. We need someone that's, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe a little more like Trump. He's decisive. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this past week and over the past month and year, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from John in Peterborough who phoned on the day after U.S. President Donald Trump was impeached by the House and was incensed by something Trump said the night before. Anyone that had any respect for Donald Trump must have lost it last night at his Michigan rally when he talked about the late member Dingell and said if he was looking up at him, meaning from hell. A man that was respected by everyone both sides, and he was having a go at his wife, who had taken his place. I, had, I cannot find anything. I tried to find something good in most people. I cannot find anything good in Donald Trump. I'm very sorry. And if you watch that show, you will see, well, on some stations, where you hear the ooing and aahing of his own people that did not agree with him. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again tomorrow for a brand new Fight Back show after the noon news. And then on Wednesday, New Year's Day, for part two of The Best of Fight Back 2019. The Best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown. 
Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.